This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from All In With Chris Hayes, The Tom Hartman Program, Counterspin, The Majority Report, The Rachel Maddow Show, Climate Activist Mike Tidwell, Comedian Lee Camp, The Young Turks, The David Pakman Show, and Moyers and & Company. And now some bad news to start with. As I record, it is a little unseasonably warm today, so it looks like climate change is back on. Rats. As a winter storm bears down on much of the country this evening, we begin with some very good news from the coldest place on Earth. The first of the helicopters to take us home. Thanks, everyone. This incredible rescue today of 52 scientists, journalists, and tourists, all part of a month-long research trip to study changes in Antarctica's environment over the last 100 years, including what role global warming has played over that time period. Because of a blizzard, their ship had been stuck in what is basically a sea of ice since Christmas Eve. Now, for anyone with any sense, you think, fantastic, I'm so glad they were rescued. But for the American right wing, you instead think it's a great opportunity to point and laugh about the hoax called global warming. Because, you know, ice. The ship sent to the Antarctic to study climate change has been stranded in the ice for 10 days. Rescuers finally got through using a whopping great big helicopter that was landing on the supposedly very thin ice. They're all out, okay? So it looks to me like we're looking at global cooling. The prospect of, air quotes, global warming scientists defeated by too much ice was just too rich with mockable goodness for the right's leading intellectual lights. Donald Trump tweeted, this very expensive global warming bullshit has got to stop. Our planet is freezing, record low temps, and our global warming scientists are stuck in ice. The right wing had a field day, pointing and laughing at the global warming believers who, just to be clear, are only a group of scientists risking their lives for no monetary gain and little glory in order to help save the planet. It truly was a New Year's gift of faux irony for the denialists, and that it coincides perfectly with their annual tradition of snow trolling makes it all the better. There's snowfall on the ground in all 50 states. It's tough to make an argument when the evidence is all around us with a snowy white wonder in a crystal cathedral. Got wind chills below zero. You're not going to convince those people they're in the middle of global warming. That's the most severe winter storm in years, which would seem to contradict Al Gore's hysterical global warming theories. Get it? It's cold. Where's your Al Gore now? I sort of feel bad for uh, Al Gore. 63% of the country is now covered in snow, and it's breaking Al Gore's heart. I wonder where Al Gore is this morning. That global warming is really taking its toll. Of course, no one ever said that climate change meant it wouldn't ever be cold. Even in the most overdramatic climate change nightmare conceived by liberal Hollywood, the end came not from hot, but from cold. A giant snow hurricane. A snurricane. And yet, here we are. Because this willful stupidity is backed by a lot of money. A new report found that conservative groups spend up to $1 billion a year to fight action on climate change. $1 billion to cultivate a group of people who delight in being on the wrong side of history. President Obama promised to begin to slow the rise of the oceans. And to heal the planet. My promise is to help you and your family. In 2006, 59% of Republicans believed that there is solid evidence the Earth is warming. Less than a decade later, that number 
has dropped to just 50%. There is an entire industry that exists to feed its viewers and readers with contempt and ridicule for not only the basic science of climate change, but even for the people who toil in obscurity, risking their lives to avert genuine misery and disaster for millions of people. And that industry controls one of our two parties. Sometimes these cuts are so much deeper than they see. You'd rather cover up, I'd rather let them bleed. So let me be, and I'll set you free. All over the right-wing osphere, there are people saying, look at how cold it is. How can you say there's global warming? Well, here's, what ha- here's what's going on. Global warming is reducing the temperature difference between the equatorial regions and the polar regions because the polar regions are warming four times faster than the than the equatorial regions. The center of the earth, the, the middle of the earth, is not warming as fast as the poles. And this is, there's a whole bunch of atmosphere physics that has to do with that. But, but basically, that difference, that temperature gradient, in other words, that difference between temperatures of, la- of, la- you know, of air at different latitudes is what accounts for the speed and intensity of and and the patterns of the flow of air as it goes around the earth in response to the earth spinning on its axis you with me okay the the earth is spinning the atmosphere is spinning a little more slowly and we call that wind and in that wind there are currents that are associated with temperatures and one of those big currents, the major one that affects temperature in, in North America, is called the jet stream. And the jet stream normally, you know, this time of year, is flowing basically over Canada or over the northern part of North America. And it's carrying, you know, you've got nor- cold polar air above it, and you've got warmer equatorial air and from the equator north below it, south of it. But the jet stream has been weakened. Uh, the way that they, uh, the way that uh, Emily Aitken, Atkin uh, describes it over at uh, Climate Progress, think, think, think Progress's uh, blog is, is it the drunk, drunken jet stream. It has become weakened by the fact that the temperature difference between the air below and the air above, the air south and the air north, is not as great as it used to be. Because the Earth has warmed up about a, you know, a little more than a degree in the last 30 years. And because that temperature difference is not as great, the jet stream is not as rigid as it used to be. It's, it's waving around. And so the jet stream is dipping way south right now, and above it, of course, is this mass of polar air. So the polar air, the air that we, from the North Pole, is literally spilling down over the northern part of North America. 
it doesn't mean that the planet is getting colder. It's another sign that the planet is getting warmer. Now, I realize this may be too much for Sean Hannity to understand or the folks over at Fox News, uh, but this is how it works. Warming up the planet doesn't just cause every place to get warmer. You know, you've got the polar icebreaker down in the Antarctic. You've got the icebreakers that are stuck in the ice down there. What you get is global weirding. You get, you get the extremes start popping more extreme. You get dry areas get drier, wet areas get wetter, some the other way around. Hot areas get hotter, cold areas get colder, sometimes the other way around. It all depends on where you are. It depends on, you know, whether or not you have mountains around you and, you know, how the, how the air currents are flowing and, you know, what they run into as a consequence of the spinning of the earth and the relative temperatures. So anyhow, the net net of this, if anybody, if anybody, yeah, you know, says, uh, hey, you know, what's this, uh, yeah, how can you say that there's global warming when it's so damn cold out there? The simple answer is that if we had not seen a 5% increase in the amount of moisture in the upper atmosphere and a over 1 degree Celsius increase in the overall temperature of the planet and a 3 to 4 degree increase in the temperature of the polar regions over the last 30 to 40 years. We may still see what we're seeing right now because we have seen it before. It happened back in the 70s, something close to it. But we're going to start seeing this kind of thing more frequently. You may have heard that there were a few days of extreme cold with a polar vortex moving across half the country. So apparently that led CNN's Crossfire show to wonder if this meant it would cool off the global warming debate. At least that's how the show's announcement put it at the top of the program, and they went on to say this, quote, This week's historic cold brings out the skeptics. Will it put the climate change debate in the deep freeze? Close quote. Well, climate deniers can say whatever they want. It's CNN's decision to put them on the air that's somewhat baffling. But there they were presenting a discussion of climate change that was perfectly balanced. Left host Van Jones and a representative of the League of Conservation Voters against right host Newt Gingrich and a Heritage Foundation climate denier floating bogus notions about a pause in global warming or the record growth of sea ice. What they were saying didn't always make sense, but that's sort of the point of the fossil fuel-funded climate denial industry, to gobble up the limited time media devote to the climate crisis to suggesting there's no crisis at all. They can only do that when outlets like CNN give them equal billing in that debate. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. 
Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories and more of my personal musings thanks so much for your support this story uh incredibly disturbing not getting very much attention in the media as far as i can tell it is a classic story of corporations socializing their costs and privatizing their profits i don't know if there is a state in the country that has been subject to more abuse by a major energy industry than west virginia the ap is reporting and others as well residents of nine counties in west virginia have been told not to use or drink their water after a chemical used by the coal industry spilled into the Elk River on Thursday. A state of emergency has been declared by the governor, Earl Ray Tomlin. For more than 300,000 people, they are without safe drinking water. They've been told not to make baby formula, not to brush their teeth, not to shower, they can only flush their toilets. Libertarians will enjoy this part of the story. The chemical, 4-methocyclohexane methanol, is used to wash coal of impurities and spilled from a tank at Freedom Industries into the Elk River. Also, uh, according to the water company, they believe that the chemical is leaking at the ground level and there is a possibility that it's been leaking for some time before it was discovered on Thursday, which means that it's highly likely that people were making baby formula, they were brushing their teeth and showering in this MCHM, which um, effects of exposure include severe burning in the throat, severe eye irritation, nonstop vomiting, trouble breathing, or severe skin irritation, such as skin blistering. God knows what it would do to an infant. Freedom Industries has yet to release a statement. But I suspect it should be, this is just part of freedom. And if you're one of those citizens who, you know, you'll have the opportunity to sue now, I guess. Unless, of course, Freedom Industries is able to use their corporate influence to fashion some type of law in the West Virginia legislature that uh, provides them limited liability for such mistakes. 
You know, Sam, if you don't want Exo, Haxlo, whatever it is in your water, in your local body of water, then you're free to pack up your infant and get the hell out of West Virginia. The West Virginian American Water Company has emphasized that once contaminated by MCHM, the water cannot be treated. So hopefully uh, it'll simply just wash out of the river eventually. Unbelievable. Really the people of West despicable. Virginia should band together with, with buckets, Sam, and just pull all the water out of that river. As uh, Mel Gibson would say in Braveheart, Freedom! This is the Meldal Locks and Dam along the Ohio River, about 30 miles east of Cincinnati. It's apparently great fishing um, in the Meldal Pool at this point in the Ohio River. It's clean. There's a lot of different fish there. A lot of people fly fish there. At least it used to be good fishing there because one of the rivers that spills into the Ohio River is the Elk River in West Virginia. The Elk River, of course, is nationally famous now because it's home to the massive chemical leak that contaminated the drinking water of 300,000 people in nine West Virginia counties. The Elk River flows into the Canal River, and then the Canal River flows into the Ohio River, and it's all just downstream. Well, some West Virginia residents are, are finally starting to get their water back on after a five-day do-not-use order. Their chemical spill is no longer West Virginia's own. A 60-mile chemical plume of contaminated water that started in the Elk River in West Virginia is now starting to drift downstream into Ohio and Kentucky and is drifting toward Indiana. Today, the Ohio River Water Valley Sanitation Commission reported that the chemical spill has reached the Meldal Locks and Dam. That chemical licorice smell that started in West Virginia is now in Ohio and it is still moving. As the slurry closed in on Cincinnati, Ohio's third largest city, the mayor there is preparing to shut down the city's water valves along the Ohio River tonight for 48 hours. It starts tonight, trying to keep what happened in West Virginia from happening in Cincinnati, too. A federal investigation into this ongoing disaster is now underway. Members of Congress have started calling for a regulatory hearing to figure out how this could have happened. But you know who's not calling for a regulatory hearing? the most prominent member of Congress, whose district includes parts of greater Cincinnati. I am entirely confident that there are ample regulations already on the books to protect the health and safety of the American people. Somebody ought to be held accountable here. Uh, what we try to do is look at those regulations that we think are cumbersome, are over the top, and that are costing our economy jobs. That's where our focus continues to be. House Speaker John Boehner being asked about the spill today. He represents the Cincinnati suburbs, where the water valves on the Ohio River are being shut tonight to try to protect that city from a 60-mile chemical plume that is about to hit them. But he says he is confident that there are ample regulations to protect the American people in incidents like this. Probably, in his estimation, too many regulations, if you really think about it. That chemical storage facility that leaked this chemical into the Elk River... 
it had not been inspected in decades. Turns out West Virginia law doesn't require inspections for chemical storage facilities at all. If you are making chemicals, yes, yeah, sure, then you get inspected. But if you're storing them in West Virginia like these guys, these guys were, go nuts. You're on your own. One local official telling the Charleston Gazette today that there was no local planning at all for a spill at this facility. Quote, that's just something that's kind of fallen by the wayside, he said. And so it took five days to get the water back on for some of the people in West Virginia. And hundreds of people reported getting sick from that chemical. And now the water is almost back on in Charleston. But that chemical plume that crippled that part of West Virginia is now on its way downstream to Ohio and to Kentucky and to Indiana. Watch this space. Rivers and roads, rivers and roads, rivers till I reach you. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. get to this story because this is so this got me so angry today it's been getting me increasingly angry but we've been talking about libertarians and their utopia where there would be no government regulation of course you cannot in any way preclude the profit making uh, the profit making incentive or impetus in society and there's a new report that or not I should report but uh, a in testimony Yesterday, a West Virginia state official. Now, we know that Freedom Industries had this warehouse where they were warehousing all sorts of chemicals. And we know that they spilled, uh, according to them initially, 7,000 gallons or so of a chemical called crude mchm there's been very little research on this in terms of its toxicity although it's clearly toxic in some way it turns out that on monday that it became clear that in fact not just seven thousand gallons were spilled this is a coal cleaning chemical uh... into the elk river but in fact ten thousand gallons of it and it also said a second chemical, PPH, was also involved in that. Now, as of yesterday, testimony given in front of a legislative panel in West Virginia, a Scott Simonton, a Marshall University environmental scientist and a member of the State Environmental Quality Board, said that he can guarantee residents in West Virginia are breathing in formaldehyde which is a known carcinogen a horrible carcinogen 
And they are still doing it nearly three weeks after that chemical uh, spill. Uh, it's frightening. It really is frightening, Simonton said. We know what scares us, and we know there's a lot more we don't know. What we know scares us. We know there's a lot more what we don't know. Um, this is just unbelievable. There's no recourse here for West Virginian citizens. Uh, Freedom Industries is, of course, they declared bankruptcy. They have probably shuttled all their assets to another shell company, and they may or may not have some financial um, uh, payment to make, but that's not going to make up for the future cancers, for the future birth defects, uh, for the future health problems, for just the idea that we can't drink our clean water anymore. There is no recourse here. This is why we need, and, and, and West Virginia is a cesspool of lack of regulation. The, the, all the politicians there, Democratic, uh, Democrats, Republicans, have been bought out by the coal industry. It doesn't really matter. And uh, we need stringent, more stringent federal regulations for this reasons. Uh, and it's just, I, I, it's just, these guys should be in prison. They should be in prison to send a message to the next uh, Freedom Industries that says, you know, if we can actually save a couple of dollars here, let's forget our own quality control on where we're storing these horribly toxic chemicals. Well, it's not unlike other companies are doing it, and like when the Exxon Valdez and that spells, they don't have to really clean it up. They don't have to really clean up. They don't have to really pay the fines. Or BP, I'm sure, has not had or to it's live just, up to their it's just the cost of doing business. Yep. It's like, you know. We've got to uh, we got to buy a new uh, steel uh, factory. We also got to pay, you know, 03 uh, percent of our profits for that year, and that's just the cost of doing business. Big deal. Sometimes we all make mistakes. Sometimes we catch the real tough breaks. But here's a trick that I've been working on. Just say oops and move on. Or spilled a hundred million gallons of oil and fucked up the world. Don't you get morose? Take a weekend yacht trip off the English coast, cause it's all good. You know that life can be a bitch sometimes. Just say oops and move on. It's your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. The key to good propaganda, like really good propaganda, is to hit people when they least expect it. You know, when their defenses or their zipper flies are down. You know, slip it into a funny advertisement or something they're reading. Or, or sneak up on people when they're investigating a mole on their back in the bathroom mirror. I don't know that, that any propaganda has been pushed at that particular time, but... Seems like a good idea. Anyway, one company has found out the best time to really pump people full of propaganda on hydrofracking when they're hardly people at all. That's right. Hit them when they're children, a.k.a. half-adults, a.k.a. tiny screaming blobs of stupidity. Yes, I might be the only one using that last phrase, but it's apropos, and it's also the way I describe Congress. Oil and gas companies in Ohio have been running around the state frantically teaching children that fracking is not just a safe energy solution, but also 
Fucking awesome. That's right. Ohio Oil and Gas Corporations have teamed up with Radio Disney to go from elementary school to elementary school playing games with ecstatic children. And why are the children ecstatic? Because they're getting out of their regular class to go goof off with a funny Disney guy running around, jumping up and down with a look of wild ecstasy and bewilderment on his face, akin to a man whose colonoscopy was done by a doctor with Parkinson's. And I can tell you, as a former child myself, that anything you get out of class for is fucking wonderful, all right? It could be a bomb threat or recess or, or, or an epidemic of kids doing that fart noise under the armpit like that. Apparently, the Disney program shows children via Wild Colonoscopy Song and Dance Man how great fracking is and how fun it can be when it's mimicked using a ping pong ball to represent the natural gas and a series of large straws to represent the fracking pipes, and nothing to represent the billions of gallons of fracking fluid, and nothing to represent the earthquakes, and nothing to represent the chemical leakage, and nothing to represent the flammable tap water, and nothing to represent the birth defects, and then nothing to represent the First Nation peoples who are displaced by the fracking industry. Not the... Not the most accurate portrayal of hydrofracking, but it nails the ping pong ball in the in the straw part of the procedure. Nails it. And the kids go wild. The children leave thinking fracking fucking rocks. And it does, if you consider the earthquake part of the equation. It rocks hard. It turns out Disney is good for much more than simply convincing little boys and girls that if you wish upon a star, you too can one day be a white princess with a biologically impossible body type. Disney also helps get the good word out to impressionable little kids that one of the things that will ultimately make our planet uninhabitable is fun and easy and a blast to play with your friends. I looked into it and there are no Disney sing-along programs for tidal, wind, or solar power. But then again, there are also no Disney programs for activities like laundering money, cleaning up brain matter, restarting a human art using only a hamster wheel and a curling iron, baking a pecan pie, and anal sex. So it sounds like when these children become adults, they're going to have to learn all of those things by surprise. Luckily, they will be pre-programmed, though, on one activity. Hydro-fracking the shit out of their town. I generally don't introduce clips, but in this case I will. Last month, I played a very short snippet, about 30 seconds of a speech, making the argument that when discussing natural gas, it's very important to focus on the entire life cycle of the gas, not just at the point of combustion. And a listener wrote and said, hey, I'd like to hear the rest of that speech. And so this is still an edited version. The full speech is about 45 minutes. This is going to be about eight, but... As requested, this is Mike Tidwell of the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, my old organization, and my old boss. First of all, let me say that in an era of rapid global warming, Maryland, our state of Maryland, for the past 10 years has been on a steady path of transitioning off of climate-changing fossil fuels. 
That's the good news. But in the past six months, a radical detour has been proposed for our state. Now, who is proposing this detour? It's a company called Dominion Resources, based in Richmond, Virginia. Dominion wants Maryland to not build wind farms and solar rooftop arrays, but to build one of the biggest single fossil fuel energy facilities ever constructed in our state. This $3.8 billion facility would take 770 million cubic feet of fracked gas from across Appalachia, pipe it to a place called Cove Point in Southern Maryland, liquefy it to about 270 degrees below zero, put it in thousand foot long tanker refrigeration ships and send it to Asia where it would be revaporized, piped again and burned in India and Japan. Now, we're at a crossroads in Maryland. In the next six or seven months, we have to decide as a state, are we going to stay the course with bigger and better clean energy development? Or are we going to take a radical detour? First of all, where is all this gas going to come from? From here, from the Marcellus Shale from new and rapidly expanding drilling using the process we all know and we're all familiar with now, hydraulic fracturing or fracking. You drill down a mile deep, you drill another mile horizontally, then you set off underground explosions in the pipe, the pipe shrap shrapnel literally punctures the rock, you pump down millions of gallons of water with chemicals and sand, and then you pump up the gas. I think most of us have heard about all the attendant problems that come with te this technique, and they include carcinogenic chemicals used in the drilling process, the confirmed triggering of earthquakes from drilling water reinjection, and of course, flammable tap water in numerous areas adjacent to drilling. But one statistic I want to focus on in particular is the US EPA's estimate that about 1.4% of all the natural gas, also known as methane, produced from the fracking process actually escapes into the atmosphere. This is important because according to the Nobel Prize winning Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, methane is 28 times more powerful at trapping heat in the atmosphere than CO2 over a 100 year time frame. 28 times worse. Pound for pound than the CO2 that comes out of the coal plant smokestack. So the more gas that you drill, you store, and you pipe, the more is leaking. And it's all designed to get that gas from the Marcellus Shale. And where's it going to wind up? A small coastal area called Cove Point in Calvert County in Southern Maryland. Now, if you've never been to Cove Point, it's right on the Chesapeake Bay. Here's the nearby town of Solomon's Island. It's like a little slice of New England. Here is nearby Calvert Cliff State Park. And here's the lovely lighthouse right on the tip of Cove Point. These energy intensive industrial scale facilities would pollute the local community with 552 tons of nitrogen oxide a year and 4.6 tons of sulfur dioxide. According, These are Dominion's own numbers, which of course create smog. So the air pollution in Calvert County is going to get worse. Then also toxins like mercury and acid gases would have to be stripped out of the natural gas and either stored in Calvert County or trucked across our state and put somewhere else. But perhaps the most astounding fact of all is that the entire liquefaction plant, according to Dominion's own numbers, would generate 3.3 million tons of planet warming CO2 per year. That would make this plant itself the fourth largest source of greenhouse gases in the entire state. Worse than four of our current coal-fired power plants. 
But we're not done. This liquefied gas now has to get to Asia. Dominion would pour it onto at least 90 refrigeration tankers like this, a thousand feet long, coming into the mouth of the bay, burning heavy crude, dumping billions of gallons of ballast water into the sea and the surrounding bay, and then turning around and making the six and seven thousand mile trips back to Japan and India respectively. These are, Dominion has already sold contracts. They've already sold this Appalachian gas to companies in Japan and India. From there, it would be revaporized and pumped by energy intensive compressor stations and through pipes to the final end users in New Delhi and Tokyo where our Appalachian gas, long traveling gas, is finally lit on fire for energy use. Really? <laughs> When you add it all up, Dominion's co-point liquefaction facility for frac gas would trigger more global warming pollution than any other process or facility in the entire state of Maryland. More than all of our seven existing coal-fired power plants combined. Now, does it make us environmental radicals to say no to this? Fracking, earthquakes, flammable tap water, piping, compressing, liquefying, tankering to Asia, revaporizing, more piping, then finally lighting our Appalachian gas on fire in Asia. What could possibly be more radical than this? So it probably should not surprise any of us that Dominion doesn't even want to do a comprehensive environmental impact statement for its co-point liquefaction plant. If Dominion's fracking plus liquefaction plant is so good for the environment, so clean, then why in the world would they be afraid of an environmental impact statement? So here's the Marcellus Shale, here are all the other basins. And all of these shale formations, again, contain gas. And I ask you, why would anyone believe that the same won't happen here? What are we in favor of instead of Copoint? And the answer is doubling, doubling our state's wind and solar generation by the year 2025. Not only is this doable, it will also create more jobs for Maryland, construction and permanent jobs, than fracking and liquefying at Cove Point could ever do. In the year 2013, in a 400 parts per million atmosphere, why in the world are we talking about bringing to the surface nearly a billion cubic feet of gas and sending it to Asia at the virtual carbon equivalent of coal? Why are we even having this conversation? If we build this Cove Point liquefied natural gas plant, we will all hear the great audible cry in our conscience of future generations asking us why. Why didn't you protect us when you could, when you had the facts? So we are at a crossroads. We have to choose now. There's no sea level rise that comes with wind power. Plus, you get the jobs. There's no Hurricane Sandy that comes with solar power. Plus, you get the jobs. This is our future. Clean energy, not Cove Point. Thank you very much. Put your new pound through the
Late breaking news here. This just in right before the show. Their new environmental impact study from the State Department on the Keystone Pipeline is in. Now, it, that doesn't sound like it'd be a dramatic story, right? Like, oh, environmental impact study in. Ooh, right? No, this one is very important because this is the key uh, finding that will lead to whether uh, President Obama approves the Keystone Pipeline or not. They claim there are other factors, and the State Department hasn't made a final ruling, let alone President Obama making a final ruling. But if the environmental impact study says there is not much impact, it is very likely that they will approve the northern part of the Keystone Pipeline. And what do we have now? What happened? Where'd it go? Approved. They said, uh, in fact, let me quote it for you. Approval or denial of any one crude oil transport project, including the proposed project, remains unlikely to significantly impact the rate of extraction in the oil sands or continued demand for heavy crude oil at refineries in the United States. Meaning it will not have a large environmental impact, which is hilarious. An environmental activist so, will be pissed. Yeah. Uh, we should really clip that out now, so that the first time the pipeline bursts and floods some farmland in uh, in you know northern United States, uh, we can play that back for them. Right. I mean, no that's environmental impact, except for all the oil on your sheep. Now that's one part. Of it. The other part of it is. You know what the people who are really worried about climate change are saying is this, these are tar sands. This is the heaviest, right, uh, dirtiest, dirtiest form of yeah. yeah of carbon content. So when that flows, that only adds to the amount of you know, the carbon that we're extracting and the climate change severity, et cetera, et cetera. So to say that that has no impact seems counterfactual, but there it is now. Uh, was it the good scientists at the Department uh, of uh, you know energy. energy that did this? And that's a really important part here. No, it was a private contractor. Okay, who did the study? Who did the study? Now wait, 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 wait. Hold for it. Uh, the c contractor is Environmental Resources Management. It's under a State Department uh, Inspector General uh, investigation now, because the consultants working on this impact study have in the past worked with. TransCanada, which runs the Keystone Pipeline, and its subsidiaries, and other oil companies related to the pipeline. Well, then wouldn't they know the most about it? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> That's right. No conflict of interest at all. Yeah. They would know a lot about it, yeah, including all the money they're going to make from they it. They still get paid from TransCanada. Like, yeah. That's how closely they're connected to the information. I, you know, you got to leave the oil business up to the people who know the oil business. You know what I mean? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you know, and as we know, and it's another story from today, the energy folks are really mad at Obama, and they're saying, oh, oh. my God, well, we're going to get him, we're going to do a coalition, and yes. et cetera, et cetera. He's in You're kidding pockets. me? And guys, you know, I we did the story a little while ago about the, how the southern leg of the Keystone Pipeline had opened, and environmentalists were pissed, and there's scathing quotes about Obama. But we already knew that it was approved. It just got opened the other day, right? I was wondering why the quotes were so scathing. I said, I wonder if they know something about that environmental impact study that's going to come out that mm -hmm. we don't know. And about a week later, it mm -hmm. comes out, and it turns out it went against us, and they're likely to approve the northern half of the Keystone. You know, one of the fallback uh, defenses of the, uh, pro, the arguments in favor of the pipeline is that, well, if we don't do it, they're just going to do it and go right through the, to the Pacific. Well. No, they're not. Turns out they're not because they don't have to go over the Rocky Mountains. Turns out, mm -hmm. uh, I, I did a little research, <laughs> and uh, turns out so they are not going to do that. It's way more costly. That's exactly why they're doing it this way, and so they just probably won't even do it. Yeah. So, 
And also, yeah. it, it's great that Obama, in his State of the Union speech, stood up and said, you know, we need to move to a cleaner, you know, energy oh, economy. Jesus. Well, stop saying that if you then are just going to, to say, no, but in the meantime, we're going to rely even more heavily on fossil fuels. No, but that's exactly the point, John. Yes. Which is that President Obama says, oh, I'm giving you clean energy, historic clean energy. Uh, and then he approves dirty energy. Now, look, he did do some positive things uh, in regards to coal, and that's why the energy guys are so pissed, right? But it's classic Obama. The energy guys hate him anyway. Yeah. Uh, the environmentalists now hate him, and he thinks mission accomplished, right? Mm -hmm. I split the baby. Mm -hmm. You got one half of the baby, the other half of the baby. We're all set to go. Yeah. No, but you actually, in reality, didn't do much about climate change. And you pissed off the other guys anyway. They never liked you. They were never going to like you. You didn't get their support. You're not going to get their. Uh, you know the the voters who vote that way. You're not going to get any of that. Besides, which, what do you care anymore? You're not going to run for office anymore. Yeah. If you were, and this is a big if, if you were a progressive, wouldn't this be the time to be a progressive, right, in your second term? So, but that's so, the thing. That's what I've been saying for a long time. So he's, he's not really a progressive. No, no. Is it no? So what he's doing now is he's trying to make sure that the midterm elections don't go sour and he loses the Senate, right? So now, In do you think that he mind. thinks that approving the pipeline is uh, going to help him retain the Senate, or would it, I don't know? Yeah. What do you think? I, I don't think that it could, and I think that it, at the end of the day, the, the joke is really on all the conservatives who've been swayed by the lies they've heard on Fox about, you know, we have to produce more oil. If we build this pipeline, then, you know, we've got more oil, it'll bring down the price, except no. it's not. They're going to ship it right past your house yes. to the ocean and then ship it to the global market and the price will drop by a penny, maybe, if they feel like it. Yes, so yeah. that's the, uh, the reason why you need a pipeline isn't to bring it here, it's to send it somewhere else. You yeah. want to burn it... So uh, the southern half only sends it out of the country. Yeah. So that's absolutely but true. And by the way, not only is it really hard to get past the Rockies, but there's a lot of native of native Canadian yeah, that, that's land, it. and they absolutely say no. No. They, yes. they, because they're actual progressives. <laughs> yeah. They're like, oh, by the way, payback's a bitch. Okay. So I know we got slaughtered <laughs> and all that stuff, right? Yeah. But I know you'd like to make a lot of money off of your pipeline. Uh, the answer is no. We had an environmental impact study over here. <laughs> it turns out we decided we don't like the environmental impact. So, no. So when they say, ah, don't worry, it would happen either way, it's not necessarily true at all. Yes, yes. So there's the natives in Canada that are opposing it. But you would think they'd be able to buy them off, right? Yeah. You'd think. Uh, um, but I was also reading that there's already thousands and thousands of pipelines, of miles of pipelines underneath the earth in the United States right now under land that carry and they break all the time mm -hmm. it yeah. turns out well, the they southern break all leg, the time they already had to fix i think it was 152 different sags leaks and bends and things like that uh, people living along the pipeline say that they have to go and find the lag seeks and bends to tell the company to fix them because the company isn't actually patrolling it well now you've got a pipeline that's 5 6 maybe even uh, more times longer like, it is going to be a disaster, and when it is a disaster, when it pours oil all over, I don't know which state it's going to be, one of the states in, in North America. I'm calling Nebraska. Nebraska, perhaps. Like, none of the conservatives are going to come out and say, yo, shit, that is a mess. You know what? We were wrong. No more pipelines. You know, maybe solar. Let's go for solar. Maybe wind. No, no. they win either way. At that point, they'll, uh, first of all, say, uh, it's not time to talk about a tragedy like this. Okay? Yes, yes. We, we don't want to politicize this yeah. tragedy. Yes. Okay? Yeah, go buy guns. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then second of all, they'll say, you see, the problem is over-regulation. Mm. The government, mm -hmm. in their regulation of the pipelines, will fill in the rest of the paragraph, who cares? <laughs> and it's the government's fault.
Yes, yes. Just yeah. the last section of that. It is no one could have been able to foreseen such a tragedy because we had a group come out, look into it, and assess that there's going to be no environmental damage and this is going to be done correctly. There's no way we could have known at the time. Let's just clean yeah. it up now. You're right. That's actually part three. But you're missing part four. When they turn around, they go, it was the Obama administration that approved this. Oh, we had nothing to do with it. Goddamn Obama. Can you believe that? You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the Solutions Project. Wouldn't it be great if someone was spearheading a project that connected science, climate reality, practical solutions, and concerned citizens? That thought led actor and activist Mark Ruffalo to Professor Mark Jacobson, the Stanford researcher who had done a study on making New York State 100% reliant on renewable energy. Ruffalo thought, why not a study on realistic plans for every state? Because as he said in a recent interview on the Inquiring Minds podcast, For the first time in, in human history, we're actually at a place, technologically speaking, where we can make this transition. And the amount of money and resources that we pour into this fossil fuel infrastructure, which has been a, an appendage to us, like uh, a third leg that we're dragging around, will will be freed up. And no longer will we be worrying about having to extract energy, but we'll be just harvesting what's already pouring on us every single day. After contacting Jacobson and bringing in Josh Fox of Gasland the Movie fame, as well as Marco Kraples of Empowered by Light, the Solutions Project was born. Their mission is to, quote, use the powerful combination of science plus business plus culture to accelerate the transition to 100% renewable energy. They have a plan available for each state to become 80% renewable reliant by 2030 and 100% renewable reliant by 2050. And these are not happy, overly excited liberal fantasies. They were developed by scientists and business leaders with research from Stanford, UC Davis, and Cornell. By combining wind, water, and solar, each state can break free from its dependence on carbon fuels. And there's no admission fee or purchase requirements or entrance exam for leaders in government and business to get their hands on these plans. They just have to say yes. You can support this movement by following them on Twitter at SolutionsProj and Facebook at Facebook.com slash The Solutions Project and signing up on the website TheSolutionsProject.org to show your state leaders that clean, renewable energy matters to you. While the project is gaining momentum, you can also visit the Put Solar On It project through JoinMosaic.com, another grassroots venture from Ruffalo, to get financial and logistical assistance putting solar panels on any structure that can viably hold them. They will walk you through the entire process and help secure funding for implementation. If you watch the State of the Union and heard the veiled support of fracking, have read desmog blogs reporting on the part of Keystone already pumping oil, or caught any commercials during your favorite television news programs, you know that we can't wait on our elected officials to lead us out of the 20th century's energy plan on their own. We must join with groups like the Solutions Project that are working on the ground to bring change to our cities and states, making it impossible for our legislators to turn away or turn them down. Activism. 
torn out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage with action? I've told you the story of how, according to an analysis done by National Science Board member James Lawrence Powell, 97% of peer-reviewed papers support the theory that human activities on Earth are affecting the climate, while 3% of peer-reviewed journal articles did not support that. We now have updated data, Lewis. Speaking of data rage, this is definitely data which is going to en enrage climate science uh, uh, deniers. The data looking at articles published from November of 2012 through December of 2013 show that the number of authors of peer-reviewed articles that agree that human activities on Earth are impacting the climate has increased, listen to this, Lewis, from 97%, ready, to 99.99%, okay? There were 9,136 authors who participated in peer-reviewed articles during that period. Only one author rejected the idea of humans impacting the climate. Now, if you say, well, hold on, David, there may have been 9,136 authors, but they collaborated on only 2,258 articles. Fine, let's base the numbers on that. In that case, there was one article that rejected human influence on climate change, making it 99.5% who agree and 0.5% who disagree. However, Lewis, 58% of Republican congressmen deny climate change as a result of human activities. And if you turn on corporate media, what do you see? You see 50-50. You see one person who says yes and one person who says no, while the numbers are 99.5% to 0.5%. Right. So what we need here is uh, some responsibility from the media, corporate responsibility, I yeah. guess you could call it. But right? we don't need any regulation, Lewis, of course. And to be fair, there are some Democrats also who disavow climate science, but they are a little bit uh, less staunch about it and far fewer in number. But still, we, we have a serious problem here because when you look at the science and you look at what our politicians believe and you look at what the corporate media present, there is almost no bigger disconnect here than the only way that this could be worse would be not talking about the story altogether. And to be honest, as I think about it, that might be better because then maybe the data would prevail over these 50-50 false equivalency debates on the three-letter news network. I don't walk bending over. I don't look down to see high. I don't name cats with Rover. I don't take what I can buy. corner store I don't fantasize of the happiness in being poor I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, always think less is more Come on, come on down to the town, to the town, to the place where the people say Tear it, tear it down to the ground, to the ground, to the ground on a certain day 
The battle never ends, and the choices we make in democracy often pit religious or partisan beliefs against scientific evidence that contradicts them. And beliefs can be stubborn, hard to give up. They even determine which facts we choose to accept. Partisans especially, and who among us is not sometimes a partisan, will twist the facts to fit their preconceived notions. So when people do stupid things, journalists and politicians included, cherished beliefs are often driving them, sometimes right over the cliff. As people in recovery say, denial is not just the name of a river in Egypt. And that's what makes it dangerous. Right now, two powerful belief systems have converged to counter facts staring us right in the face. Just as the number of Americans who question the science of evolution has gone up, so too has the number who deny that global warming is happening and that human activity is causing it. This at a time when the global scientific community is more certain than ever that you and I and everyone else are helping to turn up the heat and seal our fate. And here's the scary political reality. On both fronts, evolution and climate change, radical right Republicans have made denial a litmus test. You can see it embodied in this man, Paul Brown, Republican congressman from Georgia and a physician with strong religious beliefs. I've come to understand that all that stuff I was taught about evolution, embryology, Big Bang Theory, all that is lies straight from the pit of hell. And it's lies to try to keep me and all the folks who are taught that from understanding that they need a savior. You see, there are a lot of scientific data that I found out as a scientist that actually show that this is really a young Earth. I don't believe that the Earth is but about 9,000 years old. I believe it was created in six days as we know them. That's what the Bible says. And when he took on the science of global warming, his fellow Republicans in the House of Representatives enthusiastically applauded. Now we hear all the time about global warming, but actually we've had a flatline temperatures globally for the last eight years. Scientists all over this world say that the idea of human-induced global climate change is one of the greatest hoaxes perpetrated out of the scientific community. It is a hoax. Not true. Simply not true. Up to a point we might agree that Representative Brown's personal beliefs or his own business, even when he is telling the extremist John Birch Society that this entire concept of man-made global warming is a conspiracy to, and I'm quoting, destroy America. But remember, this man is chairman of oversight and investigations for the Science, Space, and Technology Committee of the United States House of Representatives, passing judgment on public policy and science. God help us. Hey, Jay, this is Jake from New Hampshire. I'm a huge fan of the show. Uh, I just finished listening to the education episode, and uh, you had a couple callers there at the end. One of them was talking about 
queerness and uh, as someone who considers himself queer I, I have to disagree with his assessment um, basically I would say that uh, to be a straight person who is out, uh, very allied does not make you queer more than a queer person in the closet queerness refers to sexuality not level of activism it would be just as nonsensical to say gay person in the closet is less gay than a straight person who is more active in pursuing equal rights for home for gay people so i guess i would disagree there and as to your second caller who was talking about the personhood debate you don't actually need to have the personhood debate in order to show that women should be allowed to choose uh there was a thought experiment about uh Imagine a, a group kidnaps you and hooks you up to some famous violinist and uh, says all you have to do is stay hooked up on like dialysis for this person for like nine months of your life and then we'll be able to unhook you and they'll go out and be free. And you will, you, you know, all you have to do is just sit around for nine months and keep this person alive with your own body. Uh, that, that violinist is still a person, but you are still within your rights to unhook yourself from them, condemning them to death, and going about your business. So it's, it's kind of irrelevant from this perspective uh, whether or not an unborn child or a fetus is a person, per se. You do not, you do not need to, to show that they are not people in order to show that women should have the choice to abort if they want to. Thanks, that's all I had to say, and uh, love the show. Keep up the great work. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Michael from New Jersey. I'm calling in response to Colin's comments on abortion access and reproductive freedom. I disagree that it is unfair to categorize this debate as a battle between choice and anti-choice forces. So let's take his argument as fact just for the moment, that new abortion restrictions have nothing to do with sexism, patriarchy, the control of women's bodies, or religious interference into secular governments. He sets the stage over abortion in this hypothetical, should it be legal or illegal, as a battle over personhood. Essentially, if Americans think a zygote is a person, abortion should be illegal. If a zygote is just a collection of cells that is not yet a person, abortion should be legal. Well, if this is truly the case, it is an even stronger argument for free choice and easy access to abortion. Because there is not a unified acceptance of personhood upon conception, it is therefore each woman's decision or choice on whether or not to get an abortion. Now, you can argue that this means that states that predominantly feel that, yes, a fetus is a person should have the right to outlaw or heavily restrict abortion. But from a legal standpoint, I disagree. Let's look at the recent cases in New Jersey and in California where the states outlawed gay-straight conversion therapy. In each incident, both the legislator and the courts, through reviewing scientific peer-reviewed evidence as well as personal testimony from experts, found that conversion therapy was harmful, was harmful and therefore the state was right to ban or restrict access to this controversial activity. And in each incident, the court argued that if not enough evidence was found, that they would argue that there was no right to restrict access. That was the litmus test. How clear is the evidence of harm? If there is no solid or definitive proof that abortions cause undue pain to the person, aka the zygote or whatever you wish to call it, as the caller suggested, then the state has no legal right to restrict the access, no matter the feelings by the majority of the people in the state. In our free democracy, this would mean that if a state restricts women's access to abortion, despite a lack of scientific peer-reviewed proof, and without a clear, solid mandate by the vast majority of people, the state is overreaching its boundary. 
because the science does not provide a 100% clear answer, outlaw, or legalize abortion. And the ethics of personhood are extremely varied, at least as the college suggested. Then restricting access to abortion is restricting the access to free choice and of a person making the personal decision. Until anti-choice or pro-life forces can definitively prove personhood at all stages of pregnancy through science, or until they can make a vast majority of Americans, and I mean 80, 90 percent, believe that a fetus is a person, their actions to legally restrict abortion access is an attack against women, a continuation of patriarchy, and very much so anti-choice, not pro-personhood. Thank you. Hi, Jay. Uh, Max from Brooklyn calling in response to Colin from Nebraska or from uh, episode 794 when he was calling about personhood as the big issue in uh, the uh, debate about, about abortion. And um, I was kind of expecting you to touch on something uh, in your response that you did not end up touching on, so I just wanted to kind of clear that up. Um, the reason why personhood never really comes up in a conversation uh, regarding abortion is because it's not really that big of an issue and um, the reason is it's really more an issue of bodily autonomy and um, because I think let's uh, even assume that we we grant the fact that the fetus is a person it is still relying on the woman to give up her body for its survival and uh, let's for instance you know take a scenario where you have a two-year-old girl uh, who has a kidney issue and she needs a kidney transplant and you are tested and you're the only viable donor uh, who can actually match uh, this, this girl's kidney. Now, we can scream from the mountaintops what a horrible human being you are if you decide that you are not going to give up your kidney to this girl. But the fact of the matter is we would never think of passing a law that would require you to do so. And that is really the big issue in conversation in abortion discussion. It's really a woman's bodily autonomy and the fact that she is giving up um, her body for this child. So um, really, uh, we can have a debate of personhood, and uh, I can even grant that it can go either way, but uh, truthfully, it's really an issue of bodily autonomy, and that is why it's the issue of personhood never comes up. Thanks, Jay. Bye. Hey, my name is Avra from Alabama, and I'm calling in regards to the reproductive episode, and... I was actually a little surprised that nobody touched on this piece of that subject, which is that growing up in the South, I was constantly hit with this idea that uh, abstinence was the only option and the only clear option for a woman. Um, it was much more ambiguous for a man, much less pressed onto the boys in my grade. I also believe that I was the first grade in the state to be taught abstinence only, and um as I've watched this, this whole, like, abortion and birth control debate really kind of grow up around me, I, you know, it struck me that this has nothing to do with whether or not a woman should be allowed to, to have an abortion or whether or not she should be allowed access to birth control. You know, it's not anything to do with anything about her reproductive rights. It's everything to do with shaming a woman who is interested in having sex outside of marriage or really outside of anything that doesn't involve procreation and it, it just I, I don't know why it just surprises me so much that people don't see this more clearly because you know basically what we're being told is you can't get an abortion if you get pregnant but we're not going to give you birth control because 
We don't believe in it. So when a woman asks, well, then what are my options? They're really just left with the obvious answer of not having sex at all, which then puts on this idea that you're totally shamed. You know, if you do get pregnant, you're shamed for wanting an abortion when you know that you can't take care of a child. And when you do ask for birth control, it costs an exorbitant amount of money, and you're shamed for even wanting that birth control to begin with. It has nothing to do with anything other than making sure that women stay in their place and don't have sex. And I really, coming from the South and seeing both sides of it, I really, I really stand firm on that position. I really think that's what it's about. And it's incredibly sexist and harmful to our, our women who are already shamed in so many parts of our lives and already sexual objects to begin with to really, they really have reduced us down to nothing more than the worth of our virginity. And that's just my two cents on it. Love the show. Can't wait to hear more. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I really appreciate all the calls that came in on the topic of reproductive rights today. There were several more that I didn't even have time for, uh, but I, you know, I, I wanted to give the calls as much time as possible on the show, so I don't have much to say here at the end. But I, I, I do appreciate all the thoughtful, nuanced perspectives that that center on the idea of bodily autonomy because that really is what it seems to come down to on the pro-choice side of the argument you do not have to as the callers point out you do not have to dehumanize the fetus in question in order for the body autonomy argument to still hold true and the the problem with the debate is that the other side is not a mirror image of our debate it's not like they are saying no the life of the fetus outweighs the need for bodily autonomy of the mother. They may be saying that, but they are also saying, and do not let us forget, there's a huge, weirdly, grossly mixed up set of ideas, mostly stemming from religion, having to do with restricting uh, access to birth control for women. Uh, you know, as, as the one caller pointed out, it's you know, about shaming women for wanting to have sex. And if the situation were exactly reversed, then you know you think men would have uh, you know restrictions to birth control imposed on them by a patriarchal society fuck no so there may be some fundamental divisions but then there are huge swaths of the arguments being made on both sides that simply have no mirror to the other and it seems that neither side really seems to acknowledge the legitimacy of the arguments being made on the other side which certainly holds true from where i'm sitting because i don't recognize the legitimacy of mostly religiously based ideas having to do with restricting access to birth control for women who are not like your daughter <laughs> if you want to restrict your daughter's access to birth control that's a family issue you want to do it as policy you can go fuck yourself Anyways, great calls today. If you have comments, you want to follow up on this, uh, the number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. This is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. We are up for a shorty award. You can nominate us for a shorty award. There is a link to that at bestofleft.com. Please check that out. 
Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on our award-nominated Facebook and Twitter pages. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past all the sad stories And